Good morning, fellowship. And let's stand to our feet. Let's give praise and honor to the risen King Jesus this morning. He satisfies the thirsty, he gives good things to the hungry, he heals the afflicted. He's worthy of our praise this morning. And so let's sing together. Let's sing, Come Thou Founts. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. And teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above and praise the mountain fixed upon it mount of thy redeeming love and here I raise my Ebenezer Hitherby thy help I come And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home And Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God He to rescue me from Interposed his precious blood. Sing, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. And let thy goodness. Like a fetter by my wandering heart to you. prone to wonder, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Prone to wonder, prone to my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. My chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. Amazing grace.
Lord has promised good to me. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will my shield and portion me as long as life endures. Good morning, fellowship. Good morning. I'd love to welcome everybody here. Hey, if it is your first time, please scan this QR code. We'd love to get in touch with you, welcome you, a part of this church, a part of this family, and we are so happy that you are here. Hey, I wanted to show you all something that is kind of cool. It is this completely blank book. And matter of fact, uh, it's probably going to go on display out there in our foyer over the next couple of weeks. And you're probably thinking to yourself, Pope has finally gone crazy. Why is he excited about a blank book? Well, there is one short thing written in here that I'd like to read to y'all. It says this, The book you are holding was once on display at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. This unique artifact has been viewed and prayed over by hundreds of thousands of people as it symbolizes one of the 3,791 languages whose Bible is still empty. Fill its pages with your hopes, dreams, and prayers for those who are still longing to know the life-changing Word of God. And, and today, I wanted to give you all an update. Uh, over a year ago, we, we adopted a translation project uh, with Pioneer Bible Translators. We were partnering with them. We adopted a language in Africa where it's estimated close to 50 million people speak a language, read a language, and don't have their Bible uh, translated for them. 
But just to say a giant thank you, I heard the other day that the Gospel of Luke has been translated. And so for the first time, yeah. So I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the magnitude of this. It's possibly for the very first time in history, a group of 50 million people are able to open up something in their language and read about the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not only that, not only that, the reason that this is so exciting is now they're able to take that and translate it and and put it over the Jesus film. And so there's another tool that is going to be used to spread the gospel in Africa. And I'm telling you, it's one of the most difficult countries uh, to get the gospel into. So fellowship, I just wanted to say thank you. If you've given to that project, if you've donated any money, if you've signed up to, for monthly giving, I just wanted to update you and say thank you so much. You are impacting potentially millions and millions of lives. And if you want to join in, just scan that QR code. It goes right to our link. Uh, and I pray, man, even if you're, if you're a college student here, if all you could do is like sign up for $5 a month, that $5 is, is going to go a long way. The work is being done. So fellowship, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much. I thank you so much, dear God, that, that we're in a place that this morning... People are going to be be able to open up your word, your life-giving word, and read about the love that you have for us, what you've done for us, how we can be called into your family. But God, there's millions out there who do not have that chance. And I thank you for this church body who's given of their resources that today people will be able to open up the word maybe for the first time in history, dear God, and read about your love for them and what you've done for them. God, we just give you this Sunday and we just praise your name because you are worthy to be praised in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pope. That's big news. Uh, That's worth celebrating. So, um, hey, tomorrow... In the FSM room at 6.30, we're going to have our second creative collective. And so if you consider yourself creative, even in the least bit, this is for you. Come join us tomorrow at 6.30. We'll have some snacks in there. And we're just going to hear from some different artists that have been um, creating for um, new sermon series coming up. But then also that are just creating and in response of worship to the Lord. And so we're going to hear from uh, around five or so different artists and um, it's going to be a really cool time. So even if, if you consider yourself creative in the least bit and you haven't been engaging in that as a form of worship, just come along. Be encouraged, be inspired by other artists that are going to share. Again, that's tomorrow night at 6.30 in the FSM room. We would love to see you there. Uh, church, we're going to introduce a new song to you. It's a song called All Sufficient Merit. Uh, it's a beautiful song. Released just a few weeks ago by some artist Shane and Shane that I'm I'm big fans of, um, and the song lyrically is just so beautiful, and so I, my hope is that we start singing it um, here on Sunday mornings more often. But today we're just going to teach you the chorus, and so uh, once you once you pick up on it, sing sing along with Milana and I, um, and it goes like this: the chorus just says these beautiful words, "It is done, it is finished." No more debt I owe, paid in full, all sufficient merit, now my own. So let's sing it together. It's like this. It is done, it is finished. No more debt I owe, paid in full, all sufficient merit, now my own. It again, church. It is done. It is done. It is finished. No more dead I 
let's remember that as together this morning we confess corporately that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a Savior. There's good news for us. The story doesn't stop there. Those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. So church, believe the good news. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sin. In him, we have a savior. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's just what we sang about, that it's finished. That all glory and honor to God because our debt is paid. And so church, we can rejoice in that. Let's sing it again. It is done. It is finished. No more dead I owe. Paid in full. All sufficient. Married now by own. One more time. It is done. It is finished. No more to believe that more this morning we have no merit outside of your son Jesus but in him our debt is completely paid in full we have complete redemption we have complete hope through Christ and through Christ alone and so it's that that we can stand in this morning and be thankful for God we love you it's in your son's name Amen. church this morning we're going to continue our post-resurrection series I'm excited uh, to be taught by Steve Graves. He's going to join us and, and teach us this morning, and he's a longtime fellowship member. He's been here long long before this building was even born, uh, created and built, and so he worships here week in and week out with us here in Fayetteville. So if y'all would uh, join me in welcoming Steve Graves. Thanks, Ryan. Hey, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, we are going to continue in the series on Risen, um, and we're going to look in Luke today is going to be where we're going to continue the last chapter of Luke. Um, so let's talk about stories, okay? Capturing stories and telling stories and memories is such a big piece of our society and our culture. Um, I'd like to suggest that it didn't just start with these symbols on your phone. It didn't start with Instagram, Facebook, and, and TikTok on your phone, those symbols. I might suggest that it, there was another set of symbols that it started with, maybe, maybe here, maybe on the walls of, uh, of a cave. Now, it took me a while to kind of figure out what was going on here. I had to really study it, but I think, I'm pretty sure, after I looked at it pretty hard, I'm pretty sure that's Garland Archery on the bottom left. And up top is Sarah, and Sarah comes to Garland and she says, hey, Garland, the kids need meat. So Garland, being the outdoorsman that he is, he takes his homemade bow and arrow, and he goes out, and he shoots a turkey bigger than him, and then they live happily ever after. Um, stories are such a huge piece. My, my family, actually, my wife started a, um, a deal where she, I was going to bring one, I left it down there. She, every month, she puts together these picture books for our family, and she's been doing it for a couple of years, and she just captures the big stories of the month off of her her phone photos, dumps them in, and one of these comes out. Now, I'm sure you can kind of see the theme that's beginning to emerge here. Um, Karen and I are in the, the pops and gamey zone of life, which is a ton of fun for us. Um, there's undoubtedly stories are a key piece of our world. It's just a key piece of our lives. The stories of, of, of our babies, our grandbabies, our children, um, children's activities, children's achievements, our trips, our pets. If you don't have children, we, I mean, how many people have pictures of your pets on your phone? We have tons of them. You know, I mean, it's just a key piece of everything. Today, we're going to continue the idea. I'd like to suggest this statement. 
There is literally no story uh, that is more critical to the Christian faith, more central, more critical to the entire Christian faith than the story of the resurrection of Jesus. That story is the most central story of the Christian faith. Now, the Bible is full of stories. Church history is full of stories. It's loaded with stories. I would suggest that the story of the resurrection is the pinnacle. It's the high peak. It's the high point of all the other stories coming together. If the story, if the story of the resurrection is true, then everything changes. If it's not true, then we're fine with our way to live life with moralizing or with simply what I call crooked stick theology. You know what that means? Crooked stick theology simply means that all I ever have to do is find someone more crooked than me to feel good about myself. My entire morality is built around me being a little bit more straight than you are. Um, If the resurrection didn't happen, we're fine with our human-centered, science is king approach to life at large. But if the resurrection did happen, a different story for mankind begins to emerge. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, to continue the story of the resurrection. I, I like the way Tim Keller says it. Look at this quote. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not I like his teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. We're back in Luke 24. Go there in your Bible or go there on your phone. Pull that up if you've got it. And we're going to launch, jump, we're going to jump right into verse 36. Um, Verse 36 kind of sets up the whole scene that we're going to work our way through today. Verse 36, as they were saying these things, he stood in their midst. Now, who is they, what were the things, and who is he? They are the disciples. The disciples had gone to a safe room of sorts. The Gospel of John says they were actually behind a locked door in a room they had gathered. This is the the, the same first Sunday, the first Easter Sunday. It was later in the afternoon to pick up and continue where Michael was last week. This is late in the afternoon, and they, the disciples, had gathered in the safe room, and they were talking about these things. Which things? They were talking about the last two or three days, specifically the 12 hours or the eight hours that had just been happening right in front of them. These were things of dramatic impact on life. This was not just like the the weather and what we're going to have for dinner. This was things that were very um, captivating, dominating their thinking. And they were gathered together and huddled in a room talking about these things. And then all of a sudden, the text says, he stood with them. Now, Jesus didn't come through. He didn't knock on the door and say, hey, guys, it's Jesus. Let me in. All of a sudden, this little huddle in the room went from 11 people, or we're not exactly sure exactly how many, but let's call it 10 or 11 people, to one more. And he didn't hover above the ground like a spirit being or a ghost. What he did is he stood with them in their huddle. It would be just like you looking over and somebody new is sitting right next to you out of nowhere. Now, that's pretty dramatic. It's pretty crazy. It's pretty wild. The story jumps right in. And then what happens is this. Jesus says some things and he does some things. And then that's what we're going to look at for the rest of the morning. What he says and what he does in this little huddle in a locked door room after the resurrection. I'm going to give you two big points that I like to kind of hang our thinking around. Here's the first one. Jesus answers the doubts and disasters in our faith journey. Jesus answers the doubts and the disasters in my personal faith journey. Now, remember what was happening. They were very discouraged. Their world had been turned upside down. They'd gone from the worst thing that could happen, and now they began hearing some rumors that perhaps Jesus was alive, the, 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 the disciples and the appearance on the road to Emmaus, the things that had happened that morning early with the women at the tomb, and they're hearing all these things, and they're trying to figure out what had happened. And the text says, if you look at it, the text says there was a number of emotions that was taking place. They were startled, they were troubled, they were frightened. And it says they, that doubt began to build in their thinking. 
I'd like for us to double click on the word doubt and really do some work on that because I think doubt is something that really dominates a lot of our faith journey. The word doubt in the New Testament means to uh, hesitate. It means to waver. It means I kind of go back and forth on what I think about something. And doubt had begun to build. It was growing and developing as the, it was taking over the disciples. Which way did they want to think about something? All right, how many people are going to take a summer beach vacation this summer? Raise them up. Let me see. Come on. Are you not taking a vacation? Take a vacation. One of the things that we like to do when we go to the beach is, among the things, is we like to sit and watch the waves, okay? James chapter 1 gives us the perfect picture of what it looks like to doubt. It, it tells us exactly what doubting is all about. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives us to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Here we go. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for doubting is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. A doubter is a wave. A wave comes into the shore, and he thinks that maybe he's going to stay on the shore a while. But then all of a sudden, the wave goes back out, and it wants to go out and stay at the sea. And then the wave comes back in, and it just cannot make it, but it's a mind. It's like a friend of mine says, it's of two minds. One mind says, I want to stay on the shore. The other mind says, I want to go back out to the sea. And it just comes back and forth, back and forth. That's what the disciples were doing. They were, they were back and forth. They were unsettled. They were of two minds on what they were thinking about this resurrection event. Now, this wasn't some shallow kind of a doubt. This was what I would call a disaster doubt. A disaster doubt is something that literally grabs you and, and, and changes everything about you. It pulls your life to a halt, to a stop, and literally you begin to kind of be uncertain. Is God real? It, does he really care? Um, is he willing to help me? Is he able to help me? And guess what? Some of the time I'm fine. I'm over here on the shore. But then other times I'm waving back out and I'm not sure he's real. And I'm not sure he cares. And I'm not sure he's able. And I'm not sure he's going to really help me. And then I float back in and I float back out. Now, who among us doubts? I would suggest we all do. Let's prove it up. If you've ever had a doubt about God or his realness or his ability to take care of us in your faith journey, raise your hand. Just about everybody. Okay, if you've ever had two, raise your other hand. If you've had three, stick a leg out. I mean, we're just, we're running out of limbs. I mean, look, we doubt. The disciples were doubting. And Jesus doesn't hammer them for, them, for, his, for their doubts. He answers their doubts. We all have doubts. Different kinds of things drive us into our locked room, huddle with ourselves or somebody else, where we're going back and forth in what we really think about the reality of this thing called my Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus. Did it happen or did it not happen? Is God able to, to care for me or not? So what did Jesus do? How did Jesus handle the doubts? Look down in verse 39. I'd like to, to show you two or three things. It's really amazing. Again, remember, they're still in the locked room. This is what Jesus is saying and what he's doing to the 12 who are just waving back and forth with their doubts. And look at what he does. He says, look, touch, and see. He says, look at my hands and my feet. And why did he say, look at my eyes, listen to my voice, watch the way I'm walking, can't you recognize me? Why did he say, look at my hands and my feet? Because that's the thing they were doubting about. That's the part of their disaster. That's the thing that had brought their world to a point of pain and despair and confusion and bewilderment. They just were not sure. And he said, look at my hands and look at my feet and then touch them and then see them. What do you think, guys? Is it, is it or is it not me? And then look at, the, look at the little small right in the middle. It says, it is I myself. You see that? 
That's the Greek term ego I me, and it literally is the I am statement. You remember the series that we had back, I don't remember when, um, a year ago or sometime, we had the series on the I am statements of Jesus. That's that word. Jesus in this little huddle looks and says, I am, slash, it is me, I am. Wow, look, touch, see, I am. And then he says something that appears to be a little, kind of a little flippant at first. He says, hey guys, you got anything to eat? Look at it. You got anything to eat? Now, it's not flippant, and Jesus wasn't necessarily hungry, I would suggest. It was his way of of sealing the reality, the validity, that he wasn't a ghost. He was making them come to an examination and make a decision. He was not going to allow them to simply kind of float around in their doubt and indecision. He was going to say, guys, look, touch, and see. Ego, I, me. It is I, myself, the same one that you joined for three years, and we've been walking around, I've been teaching you. It's still me. And oh, by the way, does anybody have anything to eat? A ghost doesn't eat. Spirit beings don't eat. The resurrected, physical, historical Jesus said, you got anything to eat? And the text says they gave him some boiled fish, which would not be my choice of food, boiled fish. Look at this big quote. I want us to read it. It's long, but I want you to really wrestle with this because this is, the, this is kind of the, the, the main idea that Jesus is trying to settle in the room with his disciples. The resurrection event is a historical event that demands a decision from humans. You and I cannot say it didn't happen. We can say we don't want to believe it, or we don't want to engage the truth, or we haven't examined it, but we can't say it didn't happen with any intellectual honesty. No more than we can claim that man didn't land on the moon, Julius Caesar didn't live, the Holocaust didn't happen, Martin Luther King was a made-up fiction, Napoleon was a fictional character. The death and resurrection of Jesus ought to be examined. And that's all Jesus was doing in the locked room with them. Let me try to bring it all together, then we'll jump to our second point. What Jesus was saying is this. Hey, guys, you're in this huddle room, doubting, trying to figure out, is it real? Was I real? Is 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 what I I talked about going to really happen or not? Let me settle those doubts for you. No more wave in, wave out, wave in, wave out. Might be, might not be. Can't, you know, sure, not sure. Let me settle it. Look, touch, and see. It is ego I me. It is me, myself. And by the way, I'm here with you. I'd like to have something to eat. The point is, for the rest of our lives as humans, we will find ourselves huddled in rooms, maybe by myself, if I'm really, really a loner, maybe with my family, maybe with my friends, and I will be one by one working through those disaster doubts of life, those things that push me to answer, is it real? Did it happen? Is God able? Does God care? Is he willing? In the last two or three weeks, I knew I was teaching, and so I'd been tracking a number of stories and situations, and I've just been capturing and thinking about, and I've heard people talk about having serious doubts at God's cares because they're wanting to get married and have a family, and it seems like nothing ever happens. Um, Friends have disappointed them. Mentors turned out to be horrible people. Um, Illnesses have come back. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. Those disasters of life throw us into this washing back and forth and doubting. And Jesus says, I am the answer. The resurrected Jesus says, I am the answer to your doubts and disasters. Second big point. The second big point is the last part of the section of the scripture. And it's that Jesus reorients the direction and the purpose of our life and our work. Jesus reorients kind of the the reason for being, the reason I'm here. Now, getting 
a loss or, or, or becoming lost in our orientation to life and what's really important in life is actually pretty easy and pretty common. I don't need a lot of help to kind of get off my marker of knowing what's important in life and what's not. It's pretty simple, actually. All kinds of things can, can pull me. Aging, a midlife crisis, a, a disappointment in life, the wear and tear of life, any kind of thing can kind of pull me away um, from kind of my line of orientation on what's most important. I've coached CEOs and uh, business owners and, and entrepreneurs my entire adult life. I love my work. It's what I've been doing my entire adult life. Love it. And I, I help, I've helped CEOs. I help them kind of launch their companies and scale their companies and sell their companies. And I help them find their footing as CEOs, their voice, their footing, help them solve especially complex problems sometimes. And sometimes I help them with transitions. A few years ago, I had a CEO on the East Coast call, and we were talking about some stuff. And he said, hey, man, he's a founder CEO of his own company, big company. And he said, hey, my board and my investors want to replace me. They think it's time that they get somebody new in. Now, I don't know if any of you are founders, anybody owns your own company, but that's usually not a good answer. That's not a good thing that happens when somebody says it's time for a change, all right? His world was turning upside down a little bit. Now, to be fair, he had overwrapped his identity as a founder and as a CEO into his work narrative. That had become bigger than it should have been. And so when they said, you're no longer in that seat, that became a disaster for him, okay? So we talked for a while, and he came down, and we spent some time over the next few months. And what we did is we tried to level set. We tried to reboot. We tried to reorient his world for his next season, that he was not going to be the CEO. That's all Jesus was doing with the disciples in the room. He was trying to reorient reorient them to a new way of thinking about this next season of life for them. They kind of had the first three years, and now he was trying to set them up for a new way of thinking. Make sense? There are three big insights that I think jump out of the end of the text for us that kind of help us understand how this whole thing goes, and they're about the resurrection. Let me give them to you really quickly. The resurrection anchors me to Scripture. Look at verse 44. Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and Moses, prophets, the Psalms, everything will be fulfilled. And then he opens their mind to understand the scriptures. The resurrection re-anchors, it anchors me to the scriptures at large. Now, Jesus could have done all kinds of things in the room that day, but he began to rehearse back through the fulfillment of how all the scriptures pointed to the story of the resurrection. The resurrection is the most critical, core, central story of the Christian faith. And the resurrection anchors me to the concept of scriptures. Now, the, the, big, the big question we have to ask is this. Had the disciples never, ever heard any scriptures? Well, sure they had. Sure they had. They'd been with Jesus for three years. They'd been hearing, hearing scriptures forever. They just didn't get it. They've been hearing the scriptures. Maybe they also added a little bit of their thinking on top of the scriptures. See, they actually thought that they were going to set up this kingdom and they were going to be part of the rulers and that Jesus died and everything went up in smoke. The question we have to ask and answer is how central to your world is the scriptures? Where are you getting the answers and the solutions and the resolve to the big questions of life? Theologians and, his, and um, philosophers have long said there's five big questions of life. Where did I come from? Who am I? Uh, why am I here? Um, uh, where am I going? And I can't read the fourth one. There it is. How should I live? Don't think we don't answer those somehow. We do. I was listening to literally the end of a, of a, of a, of a country western song. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Okay. I, just, I love the deepness of country western music, the thoughtfulness, the intellectualness. No, I was just listening to it. And at the end of one of them, this, this story goes into answering some of these questions. I'm like, really? Really? We all find answers to these kinds of questions somewhere, somehow. 
And Jesus is making the case that of all the deep questions of life, the scripture anchors those for us. And that's the reason I think that Jesus was walking back through all of those scriptures to refortify and layer on the idea that what God had said in the scriptures is actually continuing to be built out. So the first thing the resurrection does is this, it anchors me to the scriptures. I would like to ask the question, how are you doing in your commitment to anchoring the big questions of life to the scriptures? That begs the question, when am I reading the scriptures? How am I reading the scriptures? Um, when you're early in your faith, it can be really exciting to read the scriptures. <coughs> Excuse me. Later on in our lives, the older we get and the longer we've served um, as a follower of Jesus, often what happens is we can become kind of, oh, not, not bored and tired and fatigued, but it can kind of become mundane. It's important that we change our approach to reading the scriptures for sure. The resurrection anchors me to the scriptures. Number two, the resurrection requires me to engage culture. Look at verse 48. You are witnesses of these things, and look, I'm sending you what my Father has promised. See the word, see the word uh, witnesses? The word witnesses is literally our word martyr. You've heard the word martyr. Now, what you think of the word martyr is not necessarily what it means right here. The word martyr, we think, always means someone who dies for their faith, and that is true. But over the hundred usages of the New Testament, the word martyr usually means the same thing it means today. It means witness, and it means like a testimony. It means someone who would sit in a courtroom or someone who would sit in a conversation or in a dialogue, and they would say, I saw it. I was there. It was real. It really happened. I know it happened because I saw it. I mean, I, was, I watched the wreck happen on the corner. I was there. So this is what happened. And Jesus basically is saying in the room that day, he's saying, hey, guys, you are now my testimonies. You're the ones that are going to say it happened. You're the ones that say that because it happened, it makes a difference. Not it happened and it's irrelevant. Unless you get into a theological debate with somebody. No, no, no. The reality of the resurrection happened. And because it happened, you saw it and you were there. And because you've touched Look, saw, ego, I, me, it's me, it's me, I am. All of a sudden, like, your life is different. And now I become someone that I become missional. Say this with me. I become missional. Say it. Now, a little bit louder. Yeah, not I become a missionary. Sorry, Pope. Not, I'm, it's not that I have to change my address you can if that's what God calls you to do. I don't join the church staff. But my entire life is now tethered to something bigger than my goals, my dreams, my wishes, my aspirations, making a little bit more money, getting a new promotion, making a bigger house, taking a bigger trip. I mean, all that's fine. But I'm tied to something bigger because of the resurrection. Make sense? Let me show you the last one real quick. The last one is the resurrection does this for us. The resurrection allows me to rest. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth when he showed up in the room, they're in the huddle, he shows up, and he looks at them, and they're startled, and he says, one word, what is it? Peace. John says he actually says it twice. He says it in the opening scene, and he comes at the end, and he says it again. I would suggest that the resurrection allows me to have a level of rest and peace like nothing else. Now, the interesting part of this is, is, is it's, it's, it's kind of, it, it's interesting because as I begin to engage in culture and be missional with my life, some people who are missional are the most restless, unpeaceful, irritating people in the world. They have no concept of rest in their soul. It's all about what they're fighting. It's all about how they're arguing. It's all about what they want, you know. And, and Jesus says, I, you're now required to engage culture. You are missional. But you're going to do that and learn how to do that with rest in your soul. 
Remember, it hadn't been that long ago, Jesus said this to them, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest, peace. The resurrection anchors me to Scripture. It requires me to become missional with my life. I'm tethered to something bigger than myself. You can always spot those people, always. And the resurrection allows me to rest for the first time in this frenetic, hyperactive, go, go, go world that I'm in. I want to read you another longer quote, but it's just such a good quote as we kind of land it here. This is by N.T. Wright, who wrote probably the the best book on the resurrection in the last 30 to 40 years. Awesome book. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news and healing justice and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it just isn't about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things, and that we will work and plan with all of the energy of God to implement victory of Jesus over them. Here it is. Take away Easter, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems of this real material world. Take away Easter, and Freud was probably right to say Christianity is just a wish fulfillment. It's just an aspiration. Take away Easter, and Nietzsche was probably right when he said Christianity is just for weak people, shallow, weak people. I would suggest that no story There is no story more central to the Christian faith than the resurrection of Jesus. And that day, late in the afternoon, with the disciples huddled in the room, trying to resolve their doubts of washing in and out of what they really thought about it all, Jesus said, let me be the answers to that because I'm resurrected. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful and we are changed because of the resurrection. Our world is changed, and we are changed. We're, we're thankful. Help us to become more and more and more mindful of that experience. Stand, let's respond and worship this morning. Christ alone, cornerstone, we gave strong in the Savior's love through the storm. He is Lord, He's Lord of. darkness seems to hide his face I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds 
with trumpet sound Oh may I then in him be found Dressed in his righteousness alone Faultless I stand before the throne Faultless I stand before the throne The very stone the builders rejected has become chief cornerstone. Come now to Christ, that living stone, cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We just sang about it in church. That is the firmest foundation we can have is in Christ and in Christ alone. We can put our hope, put all things that we need for sustainability. It comes from Christ, all joy, all hope. So let's sing about that. He's worthy of every song that we can sing. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh uh-huh. 
on the cross you declared it is finished it is done there's no merit that we have on our own but in you we have all merit we have complete merit complete righteousness in your son Jesus that press into our hearts more and more and we believe that more and more may it change the way that we live Father, you deserve it and you alone deserve it because you are good church prayer room is available through the doors on your right there's communion available in there as well if you wish to partake have a great week of worship we'll see you next week